enough to introduce Ryan Kopp to us. And Ryan is a, a Jewish follower of Jesus. And as was mentioned earlier this evening, he's representing Chosen People Ministries, which is the historic, in my estimation, historic outreach to the Jewish population. They're Headquarters, of course, is in New York, and Brian has served with them since, is this correct, 2004, Ryan? Roughly somewhere in that age. At least that's what they got you saying uh, with this regard. You've got a bachelor's in Bible as well as a master's in scriptures, and he's been involved in outreach Israel as well as Shalom on Brooklyn and college campuses. You and your wife met while working in Jewish missions. Well, we're really looking forward to the presentation tonight. We've gone out of our way to, in our studies of Scripture, week by week, to understand God's sovereign plan and how he has chosen to utilize the Jewish people as his means of bringing Messiah into this world. You have a very warm, receptive people here that you're going to be speaking to. So thankful he's here with us. Shalom. Not as good, but pretty good. I usually have to ask people a second time to say that one. Thank you so much for having me uh, all the way up in Wisconsin. That's what, that's what I thought when I said Sheboygan. I don't even know where that is. Well, here it is. Uh, I did live in the Holy Land, uh, Brooklyn, so I do want to bring you greetings. How you doing? Good. You know there's more Jewish people in Brooklyn than any other city in the entire world? And if you include it with the rest of the boroughs of New York City, Manhattan and Queens and the Bronx and Staten Island, but most people don't include Staten Island, there's a lot of Jewish people there. So no wonder we're in New York City, right? Well, again, thank you for having me. I like this church uh, initially because I was told to go without a tie. That was wonderful. But I really like this church because of all the stellar haircuts like this gentleman has over there. Uh, I see one back there, and this gentleman right here. You raise your hand. You don't, want to get, you don't want to forget to be acknowledged, exactly. So anyway, thank you so much for having me. I want to tell you a little bit about myself very briefly, and then we're going to get into the message this evening, which I'm calling God's Roadmap to Peace in the Middle East. And yes, there are lots of things to consider, especially when you talk about Russia's involvement of Syria in Syria and ISIS and Egypt's collapse and Lebanon's continual sort of pseudo-civil war uh, between different groups. So we're going to get into that tonight. And obviously I'm going to give you every single piece of information you're ever going to want and you won't have to ask any questions. No, that's not true at all. I will skim over many things. I was raised in an intermarriage household. And what that meant was I had one Jewish parent and one Christian parent. We were not very religious, however. But we did celebrate holidays, okay? We did have Easter and Passover. And as an only child for nine years of my life, I had Hanukkah and Christmas, which was amazing. Okay? If you're not familiar with Hanukkah, eight crazy nights of gifts. Actually, they're just normal nights, but there's a gift. And uh, one crazy morning. But again, not a religious thing, more of, a, more of just a cultural thing, really. My father came to faith when he was invited to a church. Uh, in suburban Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from. He eventually, after three and a half months of struggling, fighting with the rabbi, fighting with the Bible, fighting with God, and then fighting with the guy who presented at the church that morning, he finally accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, fast forward a little bit. How many teenagers do I have in the room? All right. How many people have teenagers? 
Okay, how many people have been teenagers? <laughs> and some of you will be teenagers. Good. How much do teenagers think they know? How much do they actually know? Aww. Now listen, to be fair to the uh, teenagers, I was really surprised at how much my father learned throughout the years. Thank you. That was a little bit of a delay. Good. If you don't get it, ask someone else. I thought I knew everything, but when I think I knew everything, everything started getting worse. I started, you know, I didn't want much to do with God because in my opinion, you couldn't have fun if you really followed God. At least that's what I thought. So as I got into college, I knew he was there. I knew Jesus was my Messiah because I had come to faith shortly after my father did when I was 10 years old, but I wasn't really walking with him. And the further I walked away from him, the more miserable my life became. I went from an A student to starting to fail classes. I couldn't believe I was failing classes. I was a shell of myself. I was petrified and and terrified of what everybody else thought of me. The person who was uh, initially outgoing as a kid now was a shell. And I realized that I needed, I I couldn't do it. And it, it really came to a head when I found myself screaming profanities when I'm 19 years old in a townhouse development outside of the District of Columbia, and cops are called. It was not a pretty situation. But I started reading the Bible. I started seeing someone who discipled me, and I started realizing what Jesus did when he rose from the dead was defeat the sin that put him in the ground and the sin that I was still letting control me. And so I started living a life sort of victoriously as opposed to a life in deficit because he he raised from the dead. It totally changed my life. Totally changed my life. In fact, I think it's amazing because he took me from a place where I was fearful to talk with anybody my own age when I was in college to a place where my job is to share the gospel with my people who are told throughout their families and out their life that it is not okay to believe in Jesus. I'm going to a people who I know are going to reject me. That's my job. I think that's partly amazing. So I'm 19 years old, and I want to sort of start afresh. So I said, I want to get away and come back and start over, sort of like what Jesus and Paul did. And so on the ground at George Mason University outside of D.C. in Virginia, free trip to Israel is written in chalk. I call the number, and I sign up for this free trip to Israel for Jewish college students. I go on this trip, and to make a very long story short, I offered that I believed in Jesus, and I got kicked off the trip. So if you asked if I ever, have ever, have ever um, gotten any persecution for my faith, yes, it's for my own people. But on that trip, I fell in love with my people because we were all together. And they weren't religious. They were secular. And listen, if someone offered you a free trip to Israel, you'd go too, wouldn't you? Okay. So I, you know, listen, don't, don't ever go to Israel for five days because you don't even get over jet lag, okay? <laughs> Not worth it. Um, some people were happy to see me go, some weren't. And by the time I got back, my father picked me up from the airport, and he was angry. Let someone mess with your teenage kid in a foreign country and see if you're not upset. He said, are you angry at them? And I said, Dad, they're not them, they're us. They're our people. I said, sure, I'm confused, I'm a little hurt, I don't understand why they would reject me. And in an instant, sort of like a Moses burning bush experience that maybe everyone has once or twice in their life, I realized something that catapulted me into where I am today. I realized that my people did not reject me. They rejected their Messiah just like they did 2,000 years ago. 
and they did it to me, so it became personal. And my heart broke into a million pieces. One of my goals tonight is to effectively share my heart with you. Because this is not what I do. I mean, I teach at churches quite a bit. But the reason I do that is so that I can go share the gospel with Jewish people. So that I can tell my people that their Messiah came and there's still a chance for you to be a part of his kingdom. That's an amazing gift that I have. That's one of my hopes this evening. And so I determined to uh, learn more about his word, learn more about, uh, get into a better relationship with him so that I can more relevantly share the gospel with my people. And so transferred to Bible college, seminary, New York City ministry, D.C. ministry, Philadelphia ministry, and now Chicago since December, and I'm freezing. So I've never been as cold in my life. No, I'm really excited. Um, But one of the things that I am intent on starting here is uh, campus ministry, because we really haven't done much of it since the 70s, as far as all of Jewish evangelism. And that's how I want to start this message today. And as you're, as you're uh, getting prepared for this, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 36. I ran into this guy way too smart for his own good. And when you disagreed with him, it was like a bomb went off because he couldn't understand how someone could disagree with what he thought was correct. Wouldn't admit that murder was wrong. He would, he would not say that there was any good or bad in the world. There was no morality. Okay? After many conversations with him, I finally said, to the Lord, okay, sometimes, you know, he's, he's smarter than me <laughs> in some of these things, but you're going to need to do something with him because it's only going to, you have to break him. One time I asked him, you don't believe in God. You're very clear on that. Do you want to know why I believe in God? This, you know, he didn't even think about asking me because he was so intent on sharing his reasons. He said, yeah, okay, tell me. And I told him my personal story of faith. I told him stories about how I've seen God work, which, you know, you can't really debate. It's my story. You can't say it didn't happen. But then I said, and there's one other thing. Our people wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God. He goes, what do you mean? I said, Jewish people would not be here if it wasn't for the work of the Lord. There have been so many people who have tried to annihilate us from the times of the Bible until now, from Hitler uh, and... By the way, Stalin killed millions of Jewish people as well. Uh, from Pharaoh to Haman in the story of Esther. I said, if, if God wasn't there, this little people group of, of Jews, us, somebody, somebody would have annihilated us. Somebody would have succeeded. I said, in, in the Bible, it actually prophesies through a guy named Ezekiel that the Jewish people would be regathered to the land of Israel. I said, so not only does our existence prove God to me, but our existence in the land that was given to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, proves the existence of God to me. Did he accept that? No, of course not. But I thought it was pretty good evidence. (laughs) And so that's where I want to start tonight. Sometimes I'll have people come up in churches and they'll say, "My grand," and these are more mature folk than me, so, you know, they'll say, my grandfather always told me to pray for Israel and pray for the Jewish people, which is remarkable because if they're in their 60s and 70s and their grandparents told them that, this was happening way before Israel became a nation in 1948. And the reason that's astounding to me is because if you read Mark Twain's writing about his visit to what was then called Palestine that was under the British mandate, not yet Israel, nobody would want to live there. Jewish people barely lived there. 
There weren't that many. In fact, when 1948 rolled around and the state of Israel was declared, there was only about 650,000 Jewish people living in the land. It was very small. There was nothing that nothing about the land that you would want to live there. It was not flowing with milk and honey. It was desolate. There was rocks and there was sand, and that was about it. But those people had tremendous faith, and it's remarkable to me their amount of faith. Because why in the world would you have faith in something that looks so impossible? In the early 1900s, the center of Judaism was in Europe. Until 1939, that's when the Second World War started. In 1945, the new center of Judaism, because Europe was essentially annihilated, the new center was in the United States. And last decade, the center became Israel. Three locations, two shifts of population centers. That's absolutely incredible. And not only that, but in 1948, when the Jewish people declared independence, five Arab nations attacked them the next day. This is a ragtag group of Holocaust survivors. They didn't even have an airplane when the war started. They didn't have a single modern airplane. They had airplanes from World War I. Okay, That doesn't go up against the Jordanian and Egyptian Air Force. In the 60s, there was a war. In the 70s, there was a war. In the 80s, there was a war. And yet God came through for them each and every time. If you ask the Jewish people in Israel specifically, why are you surviving in a land where a billion people surrounding you want to kill you? They'll say it's their own fortitude and ingenuity. When actually, after we read Ezekiel 10, I think you'll see that it is because of the Lord and the Lord alone. But that lack of understanding gets us to our next point about Israel and their Messiah. So let's start in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 6. It's interesting here because Ezekiel is told to prophesy not to the people, but to the land. And keep in mind that sometimes in the Bible, the word Israel refers to people. In fact, most most of the time that's the case. But this time it refers not only to people, but also to the land. So let's start reading Ezekiel 36, verse 6. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Now when Ezekiel was writing this, they were, they were uh, in exile. They weren't even in the land of Israel. They were in Babylon. Okay. Why were they in Babylon? Because according to Deuteronomy, when the Jewish people came to the land with Moses and actually with Joshua, there would be blessings if they were obedient. But there would be cursings if they were disobedient. And if you know your history of the Old Testament, the, <laughs> the story of my people reads like, uh, you know, one of those telenovelas. I mean, it's just up and down and up and down. They're obedient, then they sin, then they get punished, then, they, then, they're, for, then they're forgiven, then they're obedient. I mean, it just goes over and over again. And this time they were being punished for their lack of obedience. But because of that, the nations around them who didn't follow the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob scoffed at them. And when you scoff at them, then you scoff at God. You follow the logic there? Israel was at fault. The nations around them scoffed at them, which essentially is scoffing at the Lord. Verse 7. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. So God was saying unilaterally that he was going to promise that he would bring the Jewish people back to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the land of Israel today. This is really, really interesting. I want you to see something. In verse 8, it says, You will shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people, Israel, for they are about to come. This is a satellite image of Israel, Egypt, and the Mediterranean Sea. On the right, you see the Dead Sea. A little bit north of that, which is just outside of the picture, would be the Sea of Galilee, or in in Israel they call it the Kinneret. This is not a political map, which means there are no lines drawn in by an editor. But you obviously see a stark difference, right? Do you see where it's yellow and tan? And then do you see where it's green? That's the same climate. That's not an artificial line. They didn't change that with watercolor. On the left, you see Egypt, and where it's green, that's Israel. It didn't look like that in 1900. It didn't look like that in 1915. It didn't look like that in the 1850s. Maybe it looked like that with Joshua. But God, through the Jewish people, has made this land prosperous, where they have to produce their own fruit, their own vegetables, And by the way, if you've ever had... Anybody been to Israel? All right. So tell them how good tomatoes taste there. They taste like it's from your garden, not like from the grocery store where they don't have any taste, right? And the media won't tell you this, but they actually export fruits and vegetables and flowers. And if you use your head here, you realize you're not supposed to be able to export flowers in a land that gets very little rain. And they actually pray for rain. And whenever it rains in Israel, I know it because my Facebook lights up with my friends in Israel who go, it's raining, it's raining, like they've never seen it before. That's incredible. Verse 9, for I am indeed for you and I will turn to you. You shall be tilled and sown, as you can see that's happening. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. In 1948, Jerusalem was was basically an outpost. It wasn't much of anything. In 1900, Tel Aviv practically didn't exist. But now Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, outside of New York City, are the biggest populations of Jewish people in the entire world. Tel Aviv grew as a sister city of Joppa. Joppa was in the story of Simon the Tanner, where Peter in the book of Acts saw the sheet of the unclean animals, as well as the story of Jonah. But it it grew out of this little Arab city called Joppa, and now it is this metropolis with a skyline, where a skyline didn't exist only 20 years ago. And it is one of the most expensive cities in the world as well. Jerusalem, my father jokes, has the... uh, in Israel, they, he jokes that the national bird is the crane because where, wherever you look in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, all you see are cranes building new things. It's really astounding. 
I don't recognize it from the first time I went when I was 16. You know, but my father, who's a citizen, and you know, when I, I'm a citizen as well, when we were there this summer, it's, it's unrecognizable. You would never think this is the Middle East because it's not what you picture. It's not what you get on the media. These cities are growing, and Israel is bigger than it has ever been. Jerusalem is bigger than it has ever been. Tel Aviv is a technology hub. God is fulfilling what he's talking about here. I will multiply upon you man and beast. They shall increase and bear young. This is verse 11. I will make you inhabited as in former times. Do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Do not skip over that phrase. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. It happens so many times in the book of Ezekiel, and it happens a lot in this particular passage. The idea is this. God is going to fulfill his promises regardless of the actions of Israel, Partly, number one, so that the nations around Israel will no longer shame Israel, thereby shaming God. But also, so that he can have a relationship with the people whom he loves. In other words, when I do these things, when I bring you back to the land, when I build the cities, when I bring fruit and vegetables and animals, when, when you are prosperous, then you'll know that I am the Lord then you'll have a relationship with me. Then you'll love me. Then you'll obey me. Then you'll worship me. But if you look at Israel right now, you will say that predominantly that does not happen. Less than 1% of the Jewish people believe in Jesus. So you go, well, when is that going to happen? Well, what's interesting here is that God is talking about physical restoration of the land of Israel. Why? Because he promised it. And if he doesn't fulfill it, that means he's a liar. If God does not have faithfulness to his own word in fulfilling it in the restoration regarding Israel, then what makes us think that we're going to have faith, or what makes us faithful to the idea that he would fulfill the promises to us as believers in Jesus in the 21st century? In other words, if he isn't faithful to Israel, I would have no faith in him because that makes him untrustworthy. So we have physical restoration But spiritual restoration will come. Go to verse 23. And I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord. Not only will the Jewish people know that he is the Lord, but the nations, the non-Jewish entities, will know that he is the Lord. That's what, by the way, Jewish people or people in Israel call non-Jews, they call them, or Gentiles, they call them goyim, which in Hebrew is nations. Verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of, all the, out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a, a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and you will do them. Then you will dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. So we see the physical restoration. Now there's this promise here that somehow they will come into this incredible relationship with the Lord. And the way he describes it is by receiving a new heart replacing the heart of stone, and receiving a new spirit. Now, we know from reading our Bible that there's only one way for that to happen, right? 
We have to be cleansed of sin. We have to be made holy. And we understand that the only way for that to happen is through the work of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection and their acceptance. And if you don't believe me, go to chapter 37. Ezekiel sees this valley of dry bones. God says to prophesy to them. In verse 8, he says, Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So you have this valley of dry bones. If you remember the Lion King, I just pictured the elephant graveyard. And God brings these bones together. There's rattling and then the muscles and the sinews and the tissues all come together. So all of a sudden you have these cadavers, but there was no life in them because there was no breath in them. You remember, God had to breathe breath into Adam in order for him to live. But I want you to look at this. It's interesting. In verse 8, he says there was no breath in them. The word breath in Hebrew is ruach. It's the same word for spirit and wind. That's going to come into play in a second. Verse 9, also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Only when God put his breath slash spirit in do they live. And this is a vision. This isn't actually happening. This is an idea communicating what was just said in Ezekiel 36. Verse 11, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you in for brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit, for some reason the translators, does your, does your Bible say spirit or breath? For some reason the translators decide to change the, uh, the word there, but it's the exact same word. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. So at first you get a physical gathering or regathering And then you get a spiritual rebirth through the Spirit, through the breath of God. In in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus overlooks Jerusalem on on one of his last days, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. And later he says, "You you will not see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, and he quotes King David from the Psalms, Baruch habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you have to acknowledge me as the messenger of God, the messenger that he sent to save you. Because he's not just the world's savior, which is interesting because he came to the Jewish people and there's probably not many Jewish people in this room, right? But he says, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm talking about the spiritual salvation of the Jewish people. Think about the Middle East now and what you see on the news. Syria has been on fire, essentially, for three and a half to four years. Egypt has had two, military, two, uh, two takeovers, one uh, social coup and one military takeover. Lebanon has, has had a 
decline of Christian population for a long time now, and Hezbollah, a terrorist organization, wields incredible power. ISIS is always now at the door and apparently has invaded Europe as well as the Middle East, the rest of the Middle East. Um, the, uh, the Gaza Strip, part of the West Bank, Gaza Strip is that little tiny pink part on the bottom left of Israel. They elected a terrorist organization to rule them. So there are actually two different governments for the Palestinian people. There's the Palestinian government in the West Bank, which is the larger pink area, and there's the Hamas government in the smaller pink area on the bottom left. And for some reason, regardless of the fact that you see people beheading Christians, burning alive, in the media, you see that Israel is the problem and they're incredible oppressors. Now, Israel is not a nation that loves the Lord. By and large, it is a secular nation. In fact, it was founded as a socialist nation. Sort of uh, out of necessity because that's the way they had to survive was to share everything. They are not what is described in the second half of these descriptions in Ezekiel. But we can, we can acknowledge that the Lord is still working. He's doing the things that he promised. And in my opinion, I'm recognizing that he is the Lord because of all of that. But as the Middle East is continually blowing up, because as long as I've been alive, there has always been news of strife in the Middle East. Is anybody in here that hasn't seen news of strife in the Middle East? That's my point. So, we have a nation of Israel that prospers, but it's still seen as an issue. We have the nations all around it that are always in battle with it and, its, and themselves. So what is the cause for peace? What is the cause for peace? Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We have this awesome prophecy of someone remarkable who will come. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. I want to stop right there for a second. A child is born who is called Mighty God? That's sort of confusing to the Jewish mind, right? A child is born who is called Everlasting Father. That's a title that's given to the Lord, to God himself. How is a child going to be born who will be called these things? This is one of the passages that I use to show the divinity, the Godhood of Jesus, which is a sort of an issue in Jewish evangelism. But the last description that we see is called Prince of Peace. Not only would he be the everlasting Father and mighty God, but he would also be a prince, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Maybe you saw this answer coming, but the ultimate answer for peace in the Middle East, as well as the entire world in which we live, is for the Prince of Peace to come and reign. But Jesus said, 
that the Jewish people have to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I wanted to get that tattooed on my shoulder. And then the Jewish part of me says, no, we don't get tattoos. <laughs> so I said, I can't do that. I, you know, I wanted to do my part, right? So what is our role in this life? Well, I'm sure you get these messages in church. What is your job while we're here until the Lord reclaims the kingdom that he lost at the Garden of Eden and makes it even more glorious? I submit that you join me in the worthy task of sharing the gospel with Jewish people through any means possible. And I'll share this last scripture with you. Isaiah chapter 62. And by the way, I'm not saying that's the only thing you do. I'm just saying it's one of the many things that you do. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 62. My job here is to share my heart effectively. My job here is to break your heart for my Jewish people. My job here is to illuminate the scriptures, perhaps in a way that you've never seen it. And lastly, hopefully this motivates you to be a light to my people especially. As well as many others who are in your life. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Now stop right there for a second. Think about what a watchman is. The walled city of Jerusalem stands from the, uh, the time of the Ottomans, but it's sort of the same idea of what was there at the time of Jesus, at the time of Yeshua. Watchmen stood on the walls looking outside of the city for danger or a coming dignitary or king. And if there was danger, they would sound the alarm. And if there was a king, they would welcome him with joy. They wanted to warn the city. They wanted to uh, make sure they knew what was going to happen. And these watchmen in Isaiah chapter 62 seem to pray all day long. Pray all day long. But I want to I submit one thing that you're about to see in the next verse. I think these watchmen are not looking outside the walls, but they're looking inside the walls. Verse 7. And give him, speaking of the Lord, no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. In other words, Jerusalem, the city, the capital of the Jewish nation, but more so of the Lord, has to be so incredibly beautiful, not just physically, but spiritually, that the nations that are around them acknowledge God. Until Israel, the Jerusalem, the Jewish people, are praised in the earth. It's my idea that these watchmen are looking in and warning the people and praying to God about the people because at the time of the writing of Isaiah, these people were not faithful. And at the time of this speaking, right now, in 2015, Jewish people are not faithful to the Lord. My people are not faithful to the Lord. We can be watchmen on the walls Not only of Wisconsin or Sheboygan. Imagine Sheboygan with walls. But we can be watchmen for the Jewish people. Never ever letting God's ear fall uh, fall deaf because he doesn't hear us anymore. Praying for my people's salvation. Praying for Israel's restoration and their faithful return to the Lord. Before I take any questions, 
I want you to take this out. Everyone should receive these, or most of you. We're going to do an ancient Jewish tradition all together, okay? So take this out. Everybody, hold it up. We're going to do the ancient Jewish tradition of the tear-off. So on the perforated end, I want, on the count of three, to tear off together. One, two, three. All right. You're all Jewish. Now circumcision. Like I said before, this is not necessarily my job. I do this so that I can share the gospel with Jewish people. It's because of like-minded churches and individuals just like yourselves that we're able to do that. Um, And we've had an incredible ride uh, with the Lord. And through his blessing, we've been able to raise most of our support. Um, But the way that we work is we actually have to raise everything uh, even the president of the ministry raises his own support. And we've been around since, since uh, 1894. We're a very reputable ministry. We're the largest Jewish outreach organization in the entire world. And uh, we oversee lots of different things from congregation planting to kids camping ministries, Russian outreach. We're about to start a Bible study in uh, a, a retirement. It's like a 40-story retirement building in Chicago. We'll be on campus this week. Uh, in Evanston at Northwestern University, which has lots of Jewish kids. But we can't do these things without you. So I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider joining our partnership team, either prayerfully or financially or both. In order to understand and to find out what's happening in our lives and what's happening in our ministry, you have to get our updates. This is the simple way to do that. Give that to me tonight. You don't have to make any, obliga- you don't have to make any donation or anything like that. There is no obligation to just give me this slip. But give it to me tonight. Don't, don't wait because you won't send it in, I promise. Um, and you'll get our monthly prayer letter and updates. A partnership is a two-way street. So for our part, we will be your ambassadors to the Jewish people. And by the way, if you have Jewish people uh, in, your, in your lives that you want to share with, please talk to me. I will come up to Sheboygan and share with them regardless of whether you donate anything, okay? Because that's my job and that's what I love to do. Uh, but I will be your ambassador to the Jewish people. I will update you on our ministry, sort of like Paul did with Jerusalem. And I will actually pray for you. So in order to do that, I need to be updated about what's going on in your lives. I pray that, uh, or I ask that you would pray for us. And lastly, that you would consider uh, joining our partnership team financially. Again, there is no financial obligation. But as a missionary, I do need to uh, raise support. So I would love to do Q&A. Uh, since there, uh, as you mentioned, that there is less than fi- uh, 1% uh, Christians in uh, Jerusalem, uh, many people at this stage think the, the end times are approaching very near. Since there's only one, less than 1%, what is your uh, feeling about the, the end times and uh, how soon? <laughs> I, will, I will be brief with my answer. Um, let me just clarify. I did not say there's less than 1% of Christians in Jerusalem. I said less than 1% of Jewish people in the world believe in Jesus. By the way, there's lots of different people in Jerusalem. There are international workers. There are a lot of Christians among them. There are Arabs. There are many Christian Arabs. But there probably is less than 1% Jewish believer in uh, Jerusalem, which is the majority of the population of Jerusalem. In regards to your question regarding the end times, more and more people are coming to faith. And yet that's still less than 1%. And when we talk about a growing population of believers in Israel, the good estimate is about 15,000. Now, you may think, wow, that's, that's pretty puny, and maybe it is, 
But considering maybe 30, 40 years ago, it was maybe 1,500 uh, or even less. That's not bad. Except that now, young people are coming to faith in larger numbers. Um, you saw the video uh, briefly on my video of the guy I immersed named Moti. His, his video, as well as a few others that we have produced in Hebrew in Israel, have been viewed over three or four million times. So they're, they're viral. That's considered viral at this point. And they have led, I'd say, a few dozen people to the Lord, which is actually huge in the land of Israel, and it's making a big splash in a good way. That being said, when the Lord returns, I don't know, but I know that more Jewish people need to believe in him. What's very sobering, to be completely honest, is that there were more Jewish people in 1939 who believed in Jesus than there are today, because Hitler was no respecter of persons. He killed Jewish believers just like Jewish atheists or Orthodox Jews. Uh, if you ask me, I think, and this is not chosen people's view, I think the end times are near, but, I mean, technically we're all in the end times since the New Testament was written. Uh, whether it happens in my lifetime or not, I don't know, but uh, you see the world about to explode, right? <laughs> I mean, am I the only one seeing that? Um, now, especially from the young person's viewpoint, uh, things that are going on with the uh, discussions and the, uh, sl- the slanderous statements from Iran regarding Israel, does that pique their interest in finding out more about Christianity, or does that do the opposite of that? Are you asking about Jewish people in general or young Israelis? Let's, let's do both, but young, young first and then. Uh, Jewish people, you mean Jewish young people? Jewish young people outside of Israel, a lot of times they don't have any relationship because most Jewish people are not that religious. They don't have much allegiance, if any, to, uh, to uh, Israel unless they have some family who lives there, which most don't. Young Israelis are incredibly polarized. Some are incredibly nationalistic towards Israel and want to fight with everything they've got. The others who are in the more metropolitan areas like Tel Aviv, um, it's almost like they're insulated from the dangers to the country. So they think, ah, just appease them, appease them, appease them. I mean, that's almost their political ideology. Appease them, appease them, appease them, and we'll be okay. Uh, so in, regarding to, in regards to Christianity, what's really interesting is that because of conscription, which is mandatory uh, military service, they get burnt out, and they kind of dis- get disenfranchised from Israel. And so what they do is they want to travel after their two- or three-year stint, both men and women, by the way. And so we actually meet them where they are, which are South America, New Zealand, and India. Yeah, the biggest Passover Seder happens in Kathmandu, Nepal, every single year. But we act, the guy who led my father to the Lord actually lives in New Zealand now, reaching out to Israeli backpackers, which flock to the country in the thousands. We have, we have outreach trips that go to India, um, where they're introduced to these. These are non-religious kids, students, or you know, young 20-somethings, who are looking for the answers to life. And so we want to give them the answer of life in Jesus when they're searching for it. It's not really, it's not really what you wanted, but... It's hard to say. It's individual uh, for each person. Um, He asked, how does a Jewish person reading Isaiah 53 interpret it? Number one, most Jewish people don't read their Bible. It's quite simple. Even Orthodox Jewish people don't read their Bible. Now, if I did get them to read it, 
and I didn't tell them it was Isaiah 53, they would assume it's from the New Testament. <laughs> so you'd think I'd get them, right? I'd, I'd catch them. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, but if you have a learned individual, what they'll say is that the servant from Isaiah 53, and if you haven't read this before, please read it. It is the most beautiful gospel presentation in the entire Bible, in my opinion. They will say that the servant, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, is Israel itself. They would say it's allegorical. Which, going through it, I mean, the, the pronouns and, and all these different words would have to change meaning several times. It's really, you'd have to do interpretational acrobatics to think that way. Uh, and rabbis from the 1400s and 1300s did think that Isaiah 53 referred to the Messiah at one point. Um, so it's not, it's not unique to Christianity, but in modernity, rabbis say, no, this can't be uh, Jesus. And by the way, if you have a Jewish person to share the gospel with, Isaiah53.com is our website. You can send them a free book, okay? And we will follow up to the best of our ability. I will most likely be the person who calls them if you give me their information. But uh, you can also get a free book by going there. see a growing movement of the replacement theology in the evangelical churches where the, the idea that Israel even needs to be reached out to is no longer important? Um, for those of you who didn't understand exactly what he was saying, replacement theology, also now called supersessionism, um, takes many forms, and essentially it's the belief that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus, that God is now only concerned with the church and not concerned with the promises he made to Israel, or it's a punishment for rejecting Jesus, that, he's, that he doesn't care about Israel? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, it's prevalent in Europe, becoming more prevalent in Canada, and when those two go, then America does that. It's either that way because pastors intentionally teach that, but I find that it's more prevalent because many teachers of the Bible don't know how to teach the Old Testament if parts of it don't apply to Christianity today. Sure, there are lessons that can be learned, but sometimes that's for the Jewish people specifically, written by Jews for Jews for the benefit of us uh, today. But it's almost like it's replacement theology by default simply because the Jewish people aren't mentioned or because a self-centered theology where everything in the Bible has to apply to me is being taught. And it's not even intentional, it's just sort of what happens. And I don't care what God does with the Jewish people. I only cons- I'm only concerned with what he does with me. So there's the intentional and there's the completely unintentional self-centered side of things. But yes, it's growing, and I speak in less churches now because I'm, I don't get invited because they don't want ministries like mine. And the ones that do, I just come at it from a different angle. I don't say certain things, and uh, then I say, you know, Jewish people need the Lord just like Chinese people and Hispanic people and Indian people. Our young people that accept the Lord that are Jewish, are they disowned by their families? Uh, it depends the type of family they come from. Uh, one guy that I led to the Lord named Moti, Mordecai, uh, his father's Orthodox, and he did disown him uh, for about 30 seconds. <laughs> he said, you're dead to me, on the, while they were on the phone, and they both cried on the phone. And after 30 seconds of tears, he said, fine, you're still my son. And by the way, they're getting closer and closer to accepting the Lord, Moti's parents. Um, sometimes they're disowned, sometimes they're not. It depends how traditional the family is. 
it's happening less and less, but it still does happen. I mean, we have staff on, in chosen people. And by the way, not all of our staff is Jewish. Um, but we have staff in chosen people ministries that, it, you know, this one guy, his father didn't talk to him for 30 years. And when they rekindled their relationship, led him to the Lord, and he died about three months later. That's pretty incredible. If, right. you're, if you're interested, I have two books that are really interesting. The People, the Land, and the Future of Israel, which is more of an academic uh, view of the topic we're talking about. And this is a more reader-friendly understanding the Arab-Israeli conflict. You, you use the word uh, immersion instead of baptism. Just tell us why. In Jewish ministry, I have to choose my words very carefully. Uh, because the connotations that go along with many words just aren't good in Judaism. The word Christ, I, I almost never say it. I, I almost never, I say it in churches so I can endear myself to you because that's how you relate to him. But I, the only way I heard Christ growing up was as a curse word. And I, when I came to faith, we were surrounded by Jewish believers. So I, I, I never heard that word. It was Messiah. So um, I, I don't say the word convert. I don't say... Ba- uh, baptized just because I w- always grew up with the word immerse. We intentionally did things so that when Jewish visitors came, they would feel more comfortable. We didn't want to alienate them. Uh, sometimes the word Christian is upsetting to Jewish people, so sometimes I don't use it. Uh, it doesn't matter what you call me. I know my status before the Lord. So immersion sort of happened that way, too. So very good books. Ryan, thank you so much. Can we thank him? Please talk to him afterwards and try to gain more insight, connect with him. I'm a big, big proponent of Chosen People Ministries, and I think they are doing something incredible, and we should be rightly engaged with them. Okay, Let's stand together for a closing word of prayer. So, Father, I thank you now so much for being the God who has sovereignly chosen a plan to bring Messiah into this world. You have ordained to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Gentile. And we see this thread from Genesis through Revelation. And we thank you, Father, for the way in which you have worked out this plan. When we read Ezekiel 36, 37 onwards, then we consider the statehood of Israel in 1948. We're awed by the God who is sovereign over all events, fulfilling his plan, his purposes, his promises, day by day. So we join with Ryan in praying for his people, that they would come to saving faith, and this would happen in rapid, rapid manner, because we know that it brings, likewise, the Messiah closer at hand. So we thank you now for the privilege we've had to be together tonight and pray for the dialogue afterwards that will continue to give perspective and insight to this very important topic. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Good night.